This issue of Nil Desperandum is rated PG for cleverness, possibly satirical representations of certain figures, and the certainty to offend a wide array of cultural groups. Nil Desperandum 5 Captain Stormfield's Visit to Heaven by Mark Twain Part 2 This is the second in a two-part story. If you have not yet listened to part one, may I suggest that you go back and do so before continuing on with this episode. Chapter Two I had been having considerable trouble with my wings. The day after I helped the choir, I made a dash or two with them, but was not lucky. First off, I flew thirty yards, and then fouled an Irishman and brought him down. Brought us both down, in fact. Next, I had a collision with the bishop, and bowled him down, of course. We had some sharp words, and I felt pretty cheap to come banging into a grave old person like that, with a million strangers looking on and smiling to themselves. I saw I hadn't got the hang of the steering, and so couldn't rightly tell where I was going to bring up when I started. I went afoot the rest of the day and let my wings hang. Early next morning, I went to a private place to have some practice. I got up on a pretty high rock and got a good start and went swooping down, aiming for a bush a little over 300 yards off, but I couldn't seem to calculate for the wind, which was about two points abaft my beam. I could see I was going considerable to leeward of the bush, so I worked my starboard wing slow and went ahead strong on the port one. But it wouldn't answer. I could see I was going to broach too, so I slowed down on both and lit. I went back to the rock and took another chance at it. I aimed two or three points to starboard of the bush. Yes, more than that. Enough so as to make it nearly a headwind. I had done well enough, but made pretty poor time. I could see, plain enough, that on a headwind, wings was a mistake. I could see that a body could sail pretty close to the wind, but he couldn't go in the wind's eye. I could see that if I wanted to go a-visiting any distance from home, and the wind was ahead, I might have to wait days, maybe, for a change. And I could see, too, that these things could not be any use at all in a gale. If you tried to run before the wind, you would make a mess of it, for there isn't any way to shorten sail, like reefing, you know. You have to take it all in. Shut your feathers down flat to your sides. That would land you, of course. You could lay two with your head to the wind. That is the best you could do, and right hard work you'd find it too. If you tried any other game, you would founder, sure. I judge it was about a couple of weeks or so after this that I dropped old Sandy McWilliams a note one day. It was a Tuesday and asked him to come over and take his mana and quails with me the next day. And the first thing he did when he stepped in was to twinkle his eye in a sly way and say, Well, Cap, what you done with your wings? I saw in a minute that there was some sarcasm done up in that rag somewheres, but I never let on. I only says, Gone to the wash. Yes, he says in a per particularly dry sort of way. They mostly go to the wash about this time. I've often noticed that fresh angels are powerful neat. When do you look for him back? Day after tomorrow, says I. He winked at me and smiled. Says I, Sandy, out with it. Come on. No secrets among friends. I notice you don't ever wear wings, and plenty others don't. I've been making an ass of myself, is that it? That is about the size of it. But it is no harm. We all do it at first. It's perfectly natural. You see, on earth we jump to such foolish conclusions as to things up here. In the pictures we always saw the angels with wings on, and that was all right. But we jumped to the conclusion that that was their way of getting around, and that was all wrong. The wings ain't anything but a uniform, that's all. When they are in the field, so to speak, they always wear them. 
You never see an angel going with a message anywhere without his wings, any more than you would see a military officer presiding at court-martial without his uniform, or a postman delivering letters, or a policeman walking his beat in plain clothes. But they ain't to fly with. The wings are for show, not for use. Old experienced angels are like officers of the regular army. They dress plain when they are off duty. New angels are like militia, never shed the uniform, always fluttering and floundering around in their wings, butting people down, flapping here and there, and everywhere, always imagining they are attracting the admiring eye. Well, they just think they are the very most important people in heaven. And when you see one of them come sailing around with one wing tipped up and to other down, you make up your mind he is saying to himself, I wish Marianne in Arkansas could see me now. I reckon she'd wish she hadn't shook me. No, they're just for show, that's all. Only for show. I judge you've got it about right, Sandy, says I. Why, look at it yourself, says he. You ain't built for wings. No man is. You know what a grist of years it took you to come here from the earth. And yet, you were booming along faster than any cannonball could go. Suppose you had to fly that distance with your wings. Wouldn't eternity have been over before you got here? Certainly. Well, angels had to go to the earth every day, millions of them, to appear in visions to dying children and good people, you know. It's the heft of their business. They appear with their wings, of course, because they are on official service, and because the dying persons wouldn't know they were angels if they hadn't wings. But do you reckon they fly with them? It stands to reason they don't. The wings would wear out before they got halfway. Even the pin feathers would be gone. The wing frames would be as bare as kite sticks before the paper is pasted on. The distances in heaven are billions of times greater. Angels have to go all over heaven every day. Could they do it with their wings alone? No, indeed. They wear the wings for style, but they travel any distance in an instant by wishing. The wishing carpet of the Arabian Nights was a sensible idea. But our earthly idea of angels flying these awful distances with their clumsy wings was foolish. Our young saints of both sexes wear wings all the time. Blazing red ones, and blue, and green, and gold, and variegated, and rainbowed, and ring-streaked, and striped ones, and nobody finds fault. It is suitable to their time of life. The things are beautiful, and they set the young people off. They are the most striking and lovely part of their outfit. A halo don't begin. Well, says I, I've tucked mine away in the cupboard, and I allow to let them lay there till there's mud. Yes, or a reception. What's that? Well, you can see one tonight if you want to. There's a barkeeper from Jersey City going to be fonder of kissing the emotional highlights of Brooklyn than you be. You mark my words, Mr. T's endearments are going to be declined with thanks. There are limits to the privileges of the elect, even in heaven. Why, if Adam was to show himself to every newcomer that wants to call and gaze at him and has said he is going to give Adam some of his attentions, well, as A, I, and J. But he will have to change his mind about that. Do you think Talmadge will really come here? Well, certainly he will. Don't you be alarmed. He will run with his own kind, and there's plenty of them. That's the main charm of heaven. There's all kinds here. Which wouldn't be the case if you let the preachers tell it. Anybody can find the sort he prefers here, and he just lets the others alone. And they let him alone. When the deity builds a heaven, it is built right and on a liberal plan. 
Sandy sent home for his things, and I sent for mine. And about nine in the evening, we begun to dress. Sandy says, This is going to be a grand time for you, Stormy. Like as not some of the patriarchs will turn out. No, but will they? Like as not. Of course, they are pretty exclusive. They hardly ever show themselves to the common public. I believe they never turn out except for an eleventh-hour convert. They wouldn't do it then. Only earthly tradition makes a grand show pretty necessary on that kind of an occasion. Do they all turn out, Sandy? Who? All the patriarchs? Oh, no. Hardly ever more than a couple. You will be here 50,000 years, maybe more, before you get a glimpse of all the patriarchs and prophets. Since I have been here, Job has been to the front once, and once Ham and Jeremiah both at the same time. But the finest thing that has happened in my day was a year or so ago. That was Charles Peace's reception. Him they called the Banner Cross Murderer, an Englishman. There were four patriarchs and two prophets on the grandstand that time. There hasn't been anything like it since Captain Kidd came. Abel was there, the first time in 1,200 years. A report got around that Adam was coming. Well, of course, Abel was enough to bring a crowd all by himself. But there is nobody that can draw like Adam. It was a false report, but it got around anyway, as I say. And it will be a long day before I see the like of it again. The reception was in the English department, of course, which is 811 million miles from the New Jersey line. I went, along with a good many of my neighbors, and it was a sight to see, I can tell you. Flocks came from all the departments. I saw Esquimauks there, and Tartars, Negroes, Chinamen, people from everywhere. You see a mixture like that in the Grand Choir the first day you land here, but you hardly ever see it again. There were billions of people. They were singing, or hosannaing. The noise was wonderful. And even when their tongues were still, the drumming of the wings was nearly enough to burst your head, for all the sky was as thick as if it was snowing angels. Although Adam was not there, it was a great time anyway, because we had three archangels on the grandstand. It is a seldom thing that even one comes out. What did they look like, Sandy? Well, they had shining faces and shining robes and wonderful rainbow wings, and they stood 18 feet high in war swords and held their heads up in a noble way and looked like soldiers. Did they have halos? No. Anyway, not the hoop kind. The archangels and the upper-class patriarchs were a finer thing than that. It is a round, solid, splendid glory of gold that is blinding to look at. You have often seen a patriarch in a picture on earth with that thing on. You remember it? He looks as if he had his head in a brass platter. That don't give you the right idea of it at all. It is much more shining and beautiful. Did you talk with those archangels and patriarchs, Sandy? Who? I? What, what can you be thinking about, Stormy? I ain't worthy to speak to such as they. Is Talmadge? Of course not. You've got the same mixed-up idea about these things that everybody has down there. I had it once, but I got over it. Down there they talk of the heavenly king, and that is right. But then they go right on speaking as if this was a republic and everybody was on dead level with everybody else, and privileged to fling his arms around anybody he comes across, and be hail fellow well met with all the elect from the highest down. How tangled up and absurd is that? How are you going to have a republic under a king? How are you going to have a republic at all, where the head of the government is absolute, holds his place forever, and has no parliament, no council to meddle or make in his affairs, nobody voted for, nobody elected, nobody in the whole universe with a voice in the government, nobody asked to take a hand in its matters, and nobody allowed to do it. Fine republic, ain't it? Well, yes, 
It is a little different from the idea I had, but I thought I might go around and get acquainted with the grandees anyway. Not exactly splice the main brace with them, you know, but shake hands and pass the time of day. Could Tom, Dick, and Harry call on the cabinet of Russia and do that? On Prince Gortchakov, for instance? I reckon not, Sandy. Well, this is Russia. Only more so. There's not the shadow of a republic about it anywhere. There are ranks here. There are viceroys, princes, governors, sub-governors, sub-sub-governors, and a hundred orders of nobility, grading along down from grand ducal archangels stage by stage till the general level is struck, where there ain't any titles. Do you know what a prince of the blood is on earth? No. Well, a prince of the blood don't belong to the royal family exactly, and he don't belong to the mere nobility of the kingdom. He is lower than the one and higher than the other. That's about the position of the patriarchs and prophets here. There's some mighty high nobility here. People that you and I ain't worthy to polish sandals for. And they ain't worthy to polish sandals for the patriarchs and prophets. That gives you a kind of idea of their rank, don't it? You begin to see how high up they are, don't you? Just to get a two-minute glimpse of one of them is a thing for a body to remember and tell for a thousand years. Why, Captain, just think of this. If Abraham was to set his foot down here by this door, there would be a railing set up around that foot track right away, and shelter put over it, and people would flock here from all over heaven for hundreds and hundreds of years to look at it. Abraham is one of the parties that Mr. Talmadge of Brooklyn is going to embrace and kiss and weep on when he comes. He wants to lay in a good stock of tears, you know, or five to one he will go dry before he gets the chance to do it. Sandy, says I, I had an idea that I was going to be equals with everybody here too, but I will let that drop. It don't matter, and I am plenty happy enough anyway. Captain, you are happier than you would be the other way. These old patriarchs and prophets have got ages the start of you. They know more in two minutes than you know in a year. Did you ever try to have a sociable, improving time discussing winds and currents and variations of compass with an undertaker? I get your idea, Sandy. He couldn't interest me. He would be an ignoramus in such things. He would bore me, and I would bore him. You've got it. You would bore the patriarchs when you talked, and when they talked, they would shoot over your head. By and by, you would say, Good morning, your eminence. I will call again. But you wouldn't. Did you ever ask the slush boy to come up in the cabin and take dinner with you? I get your drift again, Sandy. I wouldn't be used to such grand people as the patriarchs and the prophets, and I would be sheepish and tongue-tied in their company, and mighty glad to get out of it. Sandy, which is the highest rank, patriarch or prophet? Oh, the prophets hold over the patriarchs. The newest prophet, even, is of a slight more consequence than the oldest patriarch. Yes, sir. Adam himself has to walk behind Shakespeare. Was Shakespeare a prophet? Of course he was, and so was Homer, and heaps more. But Shakespeare and the rest have to walk behind a common tailor from Tennessee by the name of Billings, and behind a horse doctor named Saka from Afghanistan. Jeremiah and Billings and Buddha walked together side by side right behind a crowd from planets not in our astronomy. Next come a dozen or two from Jupiter and other worlds. Next come Daniel and Saka and Confucius. Next a lot from systems outside of ours. Next come Ezekiel and Mohammed 
and Zoroaster and a knife grinder from ancient Egypt. And then there is a long string. And after them, away down toward the bottom, come Shakespeare and Homer and a shoemaker named Marez from the back settlements of France. Have they really rung in Mohammed and all those other heathens? Yes, they all had their message and they all get their reward. The man who don't get his reward on earth needn't bother. He will get it here, sure. But why did they throw off on Shakespeare that way and put him away down there below those shoemakers and horse doctors and knife grinders? A lot of people nobody ever heard of. That is the heavenly justice of it. They weren't rewarded according to their deserts on earth, but here they get their rightful rank. That Taylor Billings from Tennessee wrote poetry that Homer and Shakespeare couldn't begin to come up to. But nobody would print it. Nobody read it but his neighbors, an ignorant lot, and they laughed at it. Whenever the village had a drunken frolic and a dance, they would drag him in and crown him with cabbage leaves and pretend to bow down to him. And one night when he was sick and nearly starved to death, they had him out and crowned him, and then they rode him on a rail about the village, and everybody followed along, beaten in tin pans and yelling. Well, he died before morning. He was never expecting to go to heaven, much less that there was going to be any fuss made over him. So I reckon he was a good deal surprised when the reception broke on him. Was you there, Sandy? Bless you, no. Why? Didn't you know it was going to come off? Well, I judge I did. It was the talk of these realms, not for a day like this barkeeper business, but for twenty years before the man died. Why the mischief? Didn't you go, then? Now how you talk, the like of me go meddling around at a reception of a prophet, a mudsill like me trying to push in and re help receive an awful grandee like Edward J. Billings? Why, I should have been laughed at for a billion miles around. I shouldn't ever have heard the last of it. Well, who did go then? Mighty few people that you and I will ever get a chance to see, Captain. Not a solitary commoner has the luck to see a reception of a prophet, I can tell you. All the nobility, all the patriarchs and prophets, every last one of them, and all the archangels, and all the princes and governors and viceroys were there. And no small fry, not a single one. And mind you, I'm not talking about only the grandees from our world, but the princes and patriarchs and so on from all the worlds that shine in our sky, and from billions more that belong in systems upon systems away outside of the one our sun is in. There were some prophets and patriarchs there that ours ain't a circumstance to, for rank and illustriousness and all that. Some were from Jupiter and others in our own system, but the most celebrated were three poets, Sa, Bo, and Suf, from great planets in three different and very remote systems. These three names are common and familiar in every nook and corner of heaven, clear from one end of it to the other, fully as well known as eighty supreme archangels. In fact, where our Moses and Adam and the rest have not been heard of outside our world's little corner of heaven, except by a few very learned men, scattered here and there, and they always spell their names wrong, and get the performances of one mixed up with the doings of another, and they almost always locate them simply in our solar system, and think that is enough without going into little details such as naming the particular world they are from. It is like a learned Hindu showing off how much he knows by saying Longfellow lives in the United States, as if he lived all over the United States, and as if the country was so small you couldn't throw a brick there without hitting him. Between you and me, it does gravel me. 
the cool way people from those monster worlds outside our system snub our little world, and even our system. Of course, we think a good deal of Jupiter, because our world is only a potato to it for size. But then there are worlds in other systems that Jupiter isn't even a mustard seed to, like the planet Gubra, for instance, which you couldn't squeeze inside the orbit of Halley's Comet without straining the rivets. Tourists from Gubra, I mean parties that lived and died there, natives, come here now and then and inquire about our world, and when they find out it is so little that a streak of lightning can flash clear around it in the eighth of a second, they have to lean up against something to laugh. Then they screw a glass into their eye and go to examining us, as if we were a curious kind of foreign bug or something of that sort. One of them asked me how long our day was, and when I told him it was twelve hours long, as a general thing, he asked me if people where I was from considered it worthwhile to get up and wash for such a day as that. That is the way with those Gubra people. They can't seem to let a chance go by to throw it in your face that their day is 322 of our years long. This young snob was just of age. It was six or seven thousand of his days old, say two million of our years, and he had all the puppy airs that belonged to that time of life, that turning point when a person has got over being a boy and yet ain't quite a man exactly. If it had been anywhere else but in heaven, I would have given him a piece of my mind. Well, anyway, Billings had the grandest reception that has been seen in thousands of centuries and I think it will have a good effect. His name will be carried pretty far, and it will make our system talked about, and maybe our world too, and raise us in the respect of the general public of heaven. Why, look here, Shakespeare walked backwards before that tailor from Tennessee, and scattered flowers for him to walk on, and Homer stood behind his chair and waited on him at the banquet. Of course, that didn't go for much there, amongst all those big foreigners from other systems, as they hadn't heard of Shakespeare or Homer either. But it would amount to considerable down there on our little earth if they could know about it. I wish there was something in that miserable spiritualism so we could send them word. That Tennessee village would set up a monument to Billings, then and his autograph would outsell Satan's. Well, they had grand times at that reception. A small fry noble from Hoboken told me all about it. Sir Richard Duffer, baronet. What, Sandy? A nobleman from Hoboken? How was that? Easy enough. Duffer kept a sausage shop and never saved a cent in his life because he used to give all his spare meat to the poor in a quiet way. Not tramps, no, the other sort. The sort that will starve before they will beg. Honest square people out of work. Dick used to watch hungry-looking men and women and children and track them home and find out all about them from the neighbors and then feed them and find them work. As nobody ever saw him give anything to anybody, he had the reputation of being mean. He died with it, too. And everybody said it was a good riddance. But the minute he landed here, they made him a baronet. And the very first words Dick the sausage maker of a Hoboken heard when he stepped upon the heavily shore were, Welcome, Sir Richard Duffer. It surprised him some, because he thought he had reasons to believe he was pointed for a warmer climate than this one. All of a sudden, the whole region fairly rocked under the clash of eleven hundred and one thunderblasts, all let off all at once, and Sandy says there, that's for the barkeep. I jumped up and says, then let's be moved along, Sandy. We don't want to miss any of this thing, you know. Keep your seat, he says. He is only just telegraphed, that is all. How? That blast only means that he has been sighted from the signal station. He is off Sandy Hook. The committees will go down to meet him now and escort him in. 
There will be ceremonies and delays. They won't be coming up the bay for a considerable time yet. It is several billion miles away anyway. I could have been a barkeeper in a hard lot just as well as not, says I, remembering the lonesome way I arrived. And there wasn't any committee, nor anything. I notice some regret in your voice, says Sandy. And it is natural enough, but let bygones be bygones. You went according to your lights, and it is too late now to mend the thing. No, let it slide, Sandy, I don't mind. But you've got a Sandy hook here, too, have you? We've got everything here just as it is below. All the states and territories of the Union, and all the kingdoms of the earth and the islands of the sea are laid out here just as they are on the globe. All the same shape they are down there, and all graded to their relative size. Only each state and realm and island is a good many billion times bigger here than it is below. There goes another blast. What is that one for? That is only another fort answering the first one. They each fire eleven hundred and one thunder blasts at a single dash. It is the usual salute for an eleventh-hour guest. A hundred for each hour, and an extra one for the guest's sex. If it was a woman, we would know by their leaving off the extra gun. How do we know there's eleven hundred and one, Sandy, when they all go off at once? And yet we certainly do know. Our intellects are a good deal sharpened up here, in some ways, and that is one of them. Numbers and sizes and distances are so great here that they have to be made so we can feel them. Our old ways of counting and measuring and ciphering wouldn't give us an idea of them, but would only confuse us and oppress us and make our heads ache. After some talk about this, I said, Sandy, I notice that I hardly ever see a white angel. Where I run across one white angel, I strike as many as a hundred million copper-colored ones. People that can't speak English, how is that? Well, you will find it the same way in any state or territory of the American corner of heaven you choose to go to. I have shot along, a whole week on a stretch, and gone millions and millions of miles through perfect swarms of angels, without ever seeing a single white one, or hearing a word I could understand. You see, America was occupied a billion years and more, by Indians and Aztecs and that sort of folks, before a white man ever set his foot in it. During the first 300 years after Columbus' discovery, there wasn't ever more than one good lecture audience of white people all put together in America. I mean the whole thing. British possessions and all. In the beginning of our century, there were only six million or seven million, say seven. Twelve million or fourteen million in 1825. Say twenty-three million in 1850. Forty million in 1875. Our death rate has always been twenty in a thousand per annum. Well, 140,000 died the first year of the century, 280,000 the 25th year, 500,000 the 50th year, about a million the 75th year. Now, I'm going to be liberal about this thing and consider that 50 million whites have died in America from the beginning up to today. Make it 60 if you want to. Make it 100 million. It's no difference about a few millions one way or t other. Well now, you can see yourself that when you come to spread a little dab of people like that over these hundreds of billions of miles of American territory here in heaven, it is like scattering a ten-cent box of homeopathic pills over the Great Sahara and expecting to find them again. You can't expect us to amount to anything in heaven, and we don't. Now that is the simple fact, and we have got to do the best we can with it. The learned men from other planets and other systems come here and hang around a while. When they are touring around the kingdom, and then go back to their own section of heaven and write a book of travels, and they give America about five lines in it. And what do they say about us? 
They say this wilderness is populated with a scattering few hundred thousand billions of red angels, with now and then a curiously complected diseased one. You see, they think we whites and the occasional nigger are engines that have been bleached out or blackened by some leprous disease or other, for some peculiarly rascally sin, mind you. It is a mighty sour pill for us all, my friend. Even the modestest of us, let alone the other kind, that think they are going to be received like a long-lost government bond and hug Abraham into the bargain. I haven't asked you any of the particulars, Captain, but I judge it goes without saying. If my experience is worth anything, that there wasn't much of a hoorah made over you when you arrived. Now, was there? Don't mention it, Sandy, says I, coloring up a little. I wouldn't have had the family see it for any amount. You are a mind to name. Change the subject, Sandy. Change the subject. Well, do you think of settling in the California Department of Bliss? I don't know. I wasn't calculating on doing anything really definite in that direction till the family come. I thought I would just look around meantime in a quiet way and make up my mind. Besides, I know a good many dead people, and I was calculating to hunt them up and swap a little gossip with them about friends and old times and one thing or another and ask them how they like it here as far as they've got. I reckon my wife will want to camp in the California range, though, because most all her departed will be there, and she likes to be with folks she knows. Don't you let her. You see what the Jersey District of Heaven is for whites? Well, the California District is a thousand times worse. It swarms with the mean kind of leather-headed, mud-colored angels, and your nearest white neighbor is likely to be a million miles away. What a man mostly misses in Heaven is company. A company of his own sort and color and language. I have come near settling in the European part of heaven once or twice on that account. Well, why didn't you, Sandy? Oh, various reasons. For one thing, although you see plenty of whites there, you can't understand any of them hardly. And so you go about as hungry for talk as you do here. I like to look at a Russian or a German or an Italian. I even like to look at a Frenchman if I ever have the luck to catch him engaged in anything that ain't indelicate. But looking don't cure the hunger. What you want is talk. Well, there's England, Sandy. The English district of heaven. Yes, but it is not so very much better than this end of the heavenly domain. As long as you run across Englishmen born this side of 300 years ago, you're all right. But the minute you get back of Elizabeth's time, the language begins to fog up. And the further back you go, the foggier it gets. I had some talk with one Langland and a man by the name of Chaucer. Old-time poets, but it was no use. I couldn't quite understand them, and they couldn't understand me. I have had letters from them since, but it is such broken English that I can't make it up. Back of those men's time, the English are just simply foreigners, nothing more, nothing less. They talk Danish, German, Norman, French, and sometimes a mixture of all three. Back of them, they talk Latin, and ancient British, and Irish, and Gaelic. And then back of these come billions and billions of pure savages that talk a gibberish that Satan himself couldn't understand. The fact is... Where you strike one man in the English settlements that you can understand, you wade through awful swarms that talk something that you can't make head nor tail of. You see, every country on earth has been overlaid so often in the course of a billion years with different kinds of people and different sorts of languages that this sort of mongrel business was bound to be the result in heaven. Sandy, says I, did you see a good many of the great people history tells about? Yes, plenty. I saw kings and all sorts of distinguished people. Do the kings rank just as they did below? No. A body can't bring his rank up here with him. 
Divine right is a good enough earthly romance, but it don't go here. Kings drop down to the general level as soon as they reach the realms of grace. I knew Charles II very well, one of the more popular comedians in the English section. Draws first rate. There are better, of course, people that were never heard on earth. But Charles is making a very good reputation indeed, and is considered a rising man. Richard the Lionhearted is in the prize ring, and coming into considerable favor. Henry VIII is a tragedian, and the scenes where he kills people are done to the very life. Henry VI keeps a religious bookstand. Did you ever see Napoleon, Sandy? Often. Sometimes in the Corsican range, sometimes in the French. He always hunts up a conspicuous place and goes frowning around with arms folded and his field glass under his arm, looking as grand, gloomy, and peculiar as his reputation calls for, and very much bothered because he don't stand as high here for a soldier as he expected to. Why? Who stands higher? Oh, a lot of people we never heard of before. The shoemaker and horse doctor and knife grinder kind, you know. Clodhoppers from goodness knows where that never handled a sword or fired a shot in their lives. But the soldiership was in them, though they never had a chance to show it. But here they take their right place. And Caesar and Napoleon and Alexander have to take a back seat. The greatest military genius our world ever produced was a bricklayer from somewhere back of Boston, died during the revolution by the name of Absalom Jones. Wherever he goes, crowds flock to see him. You see, everybody knows that if he had a chance, he would have shown the world some generalship that would have made all generalship before look like child's play and prentice work. But he never got a chance. He tried heaps of times to enlist as a private, but he had lost both thumbs and a couple of front teeth, and the recruiting sergeant wouldn't pass him. However, as I say, everybody knows now what he would have been. And so they flock by the million to get a glimpse of him whenever they hear he is going to be anywhere. Caesar and Hannibal, and Alexander, and Napoleon are all on his staff, and ever so many more great generals, but the public hardly care to look at them when he is around. There goes another salute. The barkeeper's off quarantine now. Sandy and I put on our things, then we made a wish, and in a second we were at the reception place. We stood on the edge of the ocean of space and looked out over the dimness, but couldn't make out anything. Close by us was the grandstand, tier on tier, of dim thrones rising up toward the zenith. From each side of it spread away the tiers of seats for the general public. They spread away for leagues and leagues. You couldn't see the ends. They were empty and still and hadn't a cheerful look, but looked dreary, like a theater before anybody comes, gas turned down. Sandy says, We'll sit down here and wait. We'll see the head of the procession come in slight away off yonder pretty soon now. Says I, It's pretty lonesome, Sandy. I reckon there's a hitch somewhere. Nobody but just you and me. It ain't much of a display for the barkeeper. Don't you fret. It's all right. There'll be one more gunfire. Then you'll see. In a little while, we noticed a sort of lightish flush away off on the horizon. Head of the torchlight procession, says Sandy. It spread and got lighter and brighter, and soon it had a strong glare like a locomotive headlight. It kept on getting brighter and brighter till it was like the sun peeping above the horizon line at sea. The big red rays shot high up into the sky. Keep your eyes on the grandstand and the miles of seats. Sharp, says Sandy, and listen for the gunfire. Then it burst out. Boom! 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 Like a million thunderstorms in one, and made the whole heavens rock. 
Then there was a sudden and awful glare of light all about us, and in that very instant every one of the millions of seats was occupied. And as far as you could see, in both directions was just a solid pack of people, and the place was splendidly lit up. It was enough to take a body's breath away. Sandy says, That is the way we do it here. No time fooled away. Nobody straggling in after the curtain's up. Wishing is quicker work than traveling. A quarter of a second ago, these folks were millions of miles from here. When they heard the last signal, all they had to do was wish, and here they are. The prodigious choir struck up. We long to hear thy voice. We see thee face to face. It was noble music, but the uneducated chipped in and spoilt it, just as the congregations used to do on earth. The head of the procession began to pass, now, and it was a wonderful sight. It swept along, thick and solid, five hundred thousand angels abreast, and every angel carrying a torch and singing. The whirring thunder of the wings made a body's head ache. You could follow the line of the procession back, and slanting upward into the sky, far away in a glittering snaky rope, till it was only a faint streak in the distance. The rush went on and on, for a long time, and at last, sure enough, along comes the barkeeper, and then everybody rose, and a cheer went up that made the heavens shake, I tell you. He was all smiles, and had his halo tilted over one ear in a cocky way, and it was the most satisfied-looking saint I ever saw. While he marched up the steps of the grand stand, the choir struck up. The whole heaven groans and waits to hear that voice. There were four gorgeous tents standing side by side in the place of honor, on a broad railed platform in the center of the grand stand with the shining guard of honor round about them. The tents had been shut up all this time, as the barkeeper climbed along up, bowing and smiling to everybody, and at last got to the platform. These tents were jerked up aloft all of a sudden, and we saw four noble thrones of gold, all caked with jewels, and in the middle one sat old, white-whiskered men, and in the two others a couple of the most glorious and gaudy giants, with platter halos and beautiful armor. All the millions went down on their knees and stared and looked glad and burst out into a joyful kind of murmurs. They said, Two archangels, that is splendid. Who can the others be? The archangels gave the barkeeper a stiff little military bow. The two old men rose. One of them said, Moses and Esau, welcome thee. And then the four all vanished, and the thrones were empty. The barkeeper looked a little disappointed, for he was calculating to hug those old people, I judge. But it was the gladdest and proudest multitude you ever saw because they had seen Moses and Esau. Everybody was saying, Did you see them? I did. Esau's side face was to me, but I saw Moses full in the face, just as plain as I see you this minute. The procession took up the barkeeper and moved on with him again, and the crowd broke up and scattered. As we went along home, Sandy said it was a great success, and the barkeeper would have a right to be proud of it forever. And he said we were in luck, too. Said we might attend receptions for 40,000 years to come, and not have a chance to see a brace of such grand moguls as Moses and Esau. We found afterwards that we had come near seeing another patriarch, and likewise a genuine prophet besides. But at the last moment they sent regrets. Sandy said there would be a monument put up there, where Moses and Esau had stood, with the date and circumstances, and all about the whole business, and travelers would come for thousands of years and gawk at it, and climb over it, and scribble their names on it.
It is, I assure you, entirely coincidental that we ended up releasing Captain Stormfield's Visit to Heaven immediately on the heels of another Life in the Afterlife piece, J. Michael Schell's An Occidental Book of the Dead. Twain intended this story to elucidate his opinion not so much on the afterlife directly, but rather, being the amazing satirist that he was, to ridicule the beliefs of other religious, and let's be honest here, generally Christian, types, and the astounding mythology which has been built up around the common conception of what life in heaven is like. As with any good satire, it can be taken either as a work for serious and introspective study on the forms and meanings encoded by the author, or enjoyed by itself, with little or no further thought or study on the matter. In this case, I choose the latter path. This is one of my favorite short stories, and I find it to be intensely enjoyable, all on its own. So to change subjects, perhaps only slightly, I must highly recommend, for I myself am greatly anticipating this, Mark Twain's upcoming autobiography. And yes, I said that correctly, autobiography. You see, Twain requested that it not be published until 100 years after his death. And that 100 years will be up in November, 2010. Selected portions of his autobiography were published by Twain himself during his lifetime. But this will be the first time the entire manuscript has seen the light of day. It will be published by the University of California Press. Go to www.thisismarktwain.com for further information. And then go visit www.ndstories.com to comment on this or any of our stories. And if you are enjoying Nil Desperandum, leave a donation. Every little bit helps. Nil Desperandum is a production of the Bear Crawling Nation, edited and published by Jim Phillips, with engineering and production work by Charles McFall. It is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license.